The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word now, and uh, if you could find your place in your Bible at Hosea chapter 5, we're really going to be in chapter 6, the first portion, but the last verse of chapter 5. Today's passage is uh, verse 15 of chapter 5 through verse 3 of chapter 6, this small four-verse paragraph, and it's, it's a brief section of this prophecy, but has a very important message that we need to remember today. So as you're turning there, let me give you a word of introduction. There was this convict who was released from prison in Kansas after serving seven years for fraud. And upon his release, as soon as he got out of prison, he immediately stole someone else's credit card. And he went on a spending spree that took him across the state. He was staying in all these nice hotels, eating in all these nice restaurants. He rented a really fancy car. And so, as you can see, he did this as soon as he got out of prison. So, it doesn't seem like he learned his lesson too much, right? Well, he was caught, and he was brought back in to trial. And so, in the courtroom, he stood there and confessed what he had done But he asked the judge to pardon him because he said that he had now learned his lesson. He said, it was wrong, and I know that now, and I'll never do anything like that again. Well, as you can imagine, the judge was unimpressed. And he said, son, I've learned that courtroom confessions tend to last only until the criminal makes it to the door. And then it all goes away. It sounds good in the courtroom, but it doesn't hold up over time. And so the judge sentenced him to twice the length of time he had been in previously. So why do I say that? Well, that story demonstrates a pretty important point uh, for the Christian life. God relates to us in a very kind and gracious manner, but he also requires that we repent and confess our sins and that we turn from our sins right not just confess them but turn away in fact i've heard it said that the most true form of repentance is a change of behavior and so this man in this story obviously uh, had not changed behavior at all he simply said what he thought the judge wanted to hear so let's relate that spiritually Can we just tell God what he wants to hear and expect him to believe that we're really meaning what we say? No, that's not how it works. So today, in today's passage, we're going to talk about and see, I pray, repentance that doesn't count when people are not humble and true in their confession. Here's what the Bible says, beginning in verse 15 of Hosea chapter 5 and going down to chapter 6, verse 3. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he's torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but we, he will bandage us. 
He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would take this word of yours that we've read and heard, and you would give us understanding so that we might learn what we need to learn and do what we need to do for your glory and our good. For Christ's sake, amen. So this short passage gives us two very clear sections. The first verse, that last verse of chapter 5, is an ultimatum from the Lord. And so our first, if you're, if you're taking notes, the, the two points today are just the ultimatum of the Lord and the response of the people. It's that simple. So what is this ultimatum that God gives to the people? Basically, God is waiting for their repentance. He's waiting for them to do what they should do and come to him in humility and confession with a contrite heart and as they confess their sins, as they repent of their sins and turn away from their sins, then he would heal them. He says that in other places in Scripture almost exactly like that. So that's what he says in verse 15. The Lord's waiting for repentance. He's left the people for a period of time, and they need to acknowledge their guilt. You see that in verse 15. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, he's gone away, and he's not going to return until that happens. And so the people need to acknowledge their guilt. True repentance, not just lip service, not just, well, I'm going to say what I think God wants to hear. Does that even make sense when I say it out loud? Well, I'm just going to tell God what he wants to hear, and it'll be all right. That totally neglects and misses that principle that God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. If we try to tell him a story and spin him a little tale and hope that he believes us, it just doesn't work like that. So we can't just give lip service to God. You know, oftentimes in our culture, in our community, we see that happening, right? We, we see in, in different relationships, if someone has wronged us and they come back and they uh, appear to be um, confessing and asking for forgiveness, but then w- what happens? The next day or the next week, they do the same exact thing again. So h- how credible is that confession or that... that uh, question for forgiveness how how credible is that if they turn right back around and do the same thing again and then they ask for forgiveness again oh i'm sorry i shouldn't have done that and then the very next week they do the exact same thing again you see this pattern develops and that's exactly what's going on here with god's people that's how they have behaved they're doing the same things over and over and so god is not going to listen to these empty words as much as he's going to observe these actions that are contrary to what they're saying so the people are going to seek the lord because of their circumstances but when they seek him we're going to see that they come with empty words their hearts are not devoted to him and they're not truly repentant of their sins so that's the ultimatum that god gives in verse 15 then number two the response of the people in this first section of chapter six 
you see how it starts out in verse 1. Come, let us return, return to the Lord. So it appears that the people are coming back to God, just as he has told them to do. But it's not just the action, it's the attitude. It's what's their heart looking like when they do this. They say, come let us return to the Lord, for he's torn us, but he'll heal us. He has struck us or wounded us, but he'll bandage us. So you almost see this sense of, well, God's good, and he's loving, and he's gracious, and he's merciful, and he's kind. Surely he'll forgive us, right? That seems to be the attitude. The only problem is, is he going to forgive despite our attitude, despite our uh, refusal to turn away from our sin, and we're just going to keep doing the same thing, but, oh, that's all right. God's grace is sufficient, right? So it doesn't matter if I keep sinning, right? I can just do whatever I want to, and God's going to forgive me because he's so good. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that is not how God relates to us. God expects true repentance. He expects a change of heart, a change of behavior, and His Holy Spirit is at work to do that very thing, to change our hearts, to help us to refocus our minds and our eyes and our hearts and our behavior on Christ so that we'll do what He asks us to do. We'll follow His example and not continue in our sin. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. See, the people have been torn, but they're still waiting for His healing. They've been wounded, but they're still waiting for him to bandage them up. In fact, these people are actually expecting revival. Now, now think about this. How much sense would it make to continue in sin, to continue to act and live and speak in a way that's contrary to God's word, and yet all the while, well, God's going to send revival any moment now. And, and yet we're not living that way. We're not living in a way that would prompt God or else even get his notice to say, I'm going to revive these people. They're really sold out. They're living for me. They're seeking my face. They're following my word. They're spending time in prayer. They're telling people about my son Jesus. And so I'm going to come and send revival. And that might make more sense than what's going on here. Oh, we're just going to continue on sinning. And we're going to just live however we want to live. And we're going to do whatever we want to do. But God's still going to send revival because, you know, he's good. He'll do that. That's not how it works. I almost feel like I'm, I'm coming to that conclusion more and more. The more I read, the more I study. That's not how it works. We keep seeing examples after example after example of people that refuse to repent and refuse to follow God and yet expect something different from him but that's not how it works they're expecting revival to happen soon they're expecting to be completely restored to being god's people and they need to know the lord in fact in the text here they admonish one another to press on look in verse three let us press on to know the lord and they're saying things about god that are true but they're not living according to that truth. It's almost as if we're, we can recite Scripture and we can read it and see the truth about God, but yet we don't change our lives to reflect that. 
it's just almost as if we believe the, the very act of reading the Bible and saying things that are true about God is enough. Like we don't have to respond to it. We just have to, to see it and know it. And maybe if we say it out loud, maybe it'll make more uh, of an effect. But the point is there, they need to know the Lord, and they admonish one another to press on toward knowing God, but they're not changing their behavior. They acknowledge that God is unchangeable and that he's trustworthy. They even mention in verse 3 how he's going to come to them like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. In other words, we can count on the rain that God sends to water the earth. We can count on because he's faithful, he's consistent, he never changes, his character is unchanging. And so they are talking about God in a way that's true, and yet they don't register the fact that he's not going to just overlook their behavior, and he's not going to overlook their lack of repentance. So they're expecting to God, uh, God to come to them just as certainly as the rain falls, but here's one thing that we see in these four verses. There are a couple things that are missing from this equation. There are some necessary components that are missing from the people, from their response. There is, li listen to what they say here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. If you go back and look over those three verses, here's what you don't see. There's no reference to their sin. And there's no evidence of a personal relationship with God. For example, a few weeks ago, we studied, I believe it was on a Wednesday night, we studied Psalm 51. And this psalm is a, is a prayer that David prays after his great sin with Bathsheba. And you see the, the heart attitude of David. Let me, let me just read a, a few verses from Psalm 51. David writes as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, Be gracious to me, God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He starts out from the very beginning talking about his own failure. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Then he goes on in his prayer to say, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. And if that were not enough, you, you just hear his heart. You can sense his humility and his repentance. And then he says, you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. See, with David, in his prayer, after his sinfulness, you can see and hear and feel repentance, confession, humility. He knows he's done wrong in God's eyes, and he desperately wants to be restored. But here in Hosea, there's no such attitude. There's no 
words that reflect that. There's no heart condition that reflects that. It's just the opposite. There's no reference to their sin. There's no evidence of a personal relationship with God. And so here's the principle we can learn from in this text. It is always a mistake to presume on God. It's always a mistake to presume on God, to presume His grace, His faithfulness, His forgiveness, His kindness. We are never in greater danger than when we assume that He will always forgive us as long as we go through these outward forms of repentance. In other words, I'm going to go through these motions, I'm going to check these boxes like it's a magic equation, and as soon as I do that, God is bound to forgive me. He's obligated to forgive me. That is not the case. We can't assume that God is going to forgive us just because we go through some outward form of repentance. And it seems by their response that these people have neglected to remember this important piece of information. Forgiveness is available, but it is not automatic. It's available, but not automatic. So there's two passages of Scripture here that I'd like to visit for just a moment as we conclude this study for these four verses in Hosea. There's two passages of Scripture that are very helpful for us to see in reference to what we've just looked at in Hosea. First of all, in Matthew chapter 7, and if you'd like to turn there, you you can. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. Listen to what Jesus says. This is the near the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 13. Here's what Jesus says. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. Yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching 
for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. You see, when Jesus spoke these words to the people, he was saying very clearly, you'll know a true prophet or a false prophet based on the fruit they bear with their lives. And then he said, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you? Didn't we do this? And he'll say, I never knew you. And then he closes that thought with a third illustration. If you hear the word but you don't do it, you're like a foolish man who built a house on the sand with no foundation. And when the storms came, it was demolished. And and it's likened to those who hear the word of God but don't actually follow it. Very clear in his teaching in that section of his Sermon on the Mount. And the final passage that I wanted to mention today is found in Romans chapter 6, the first seven verses. You might recognize these words because we usually quote from Romans 6 when we baptize a new believer. But in Romans 6, Paul is inspired to write these words to the church, and he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, and here's the the key, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. See, the Bible is very consistent in its teaching about sanctification and change and following God's Word. It's not just an academic exercise. We don't just need to read and hear and know the Bible. We might can quote a dozen Bible verses, but if we're not living it, it's of no consequence to our lives. Academic knowledge does not equal heart change. It doesn't equal a new sanctified, Jesus-honoring life. In fact, I'll close with this statement. James Montgomery Boyce, a great commentator, said about this passage, There will be no revival until there is an acute awareness of sin and a genuine turning from it. We want revival in this nation. We need revival in this nation. We need it in the country. We need it in the world. We need it in our state. We need it in our county. We need it in our community. But it simply will not happen unless there is acute awareness of sin and a genuine turning from sin. Folks, we cannot live under the illusion that God is not concerned with our lives and how we live. That, that could very well be one of his chief concerns. He has 
sent his son to this earth to live a particular kind of life, a sinless life, so that he would be the perfect sacrifice, that he would go to a cross and willingly lay down his life in order that all who believe in Christ by faith would be saved and forgiven of sin and changed. The Bible says we're changed, transformed into the image of his dear son. And so for that to happen, we have to be aware of our sin and we have to turn from our sin. True, genuine repentance. There is no other way to revival. So the question before us today is that. What are we doing with our sin? Are we aware of it? And when we're aware of it, are we doing anything about it? Are we heartbroken for it? Are we going to God in humility and begging for forgiveness and knowing that because He is faithful and just, if we confess our sins, He'll forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? That's a promise of God. He stands ready and waiting to cleanse us and forgive us and to make us new and to make us more like Jesus. And all He asks is that we come to Him with humble broken hearts and repent not just say yeah god i messed up sorry about that no humble repentance broken hearts that long to follow after jesus and be made more like him so that we'll be in a better position to be good witnesses for the gospel, that we'll go and take that message of Christ and His forgiveness everywhere we go so that others might know Him. That's the real goal behind all this. It's helpful for us. It's good for us. But it's beneficial for others who need to know Him. We need to live lives that match up to our confession so when we share the gospel, we have a credible, believable witness to what Jesus has done. And that's my prayer for all of us. Join me as we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 